too, too, too hot for TV. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV. Now, I'm still without a co-host. Jack has promised he'll be back next month with our long-delayed episode about Father Time and the Miranda comics and the Doctor's daughter. But I am joined by a guest familiar to listeners of this podcast. I have Mark here to co-host this from On The Time Lash. Mark, how are you doing? Hello. Um, this is this is nice. I feel like I'm on Have I Got News For You or something. Where, <laughs> you know, Jack's been done for, you know, cocaine and prostitutes. And I've been... He has. In. That's exactly his issue. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got a few things to talk about today. The listeners won't know what they are because we didn't do any announcements or anything like that. We're going to do two Eighth Doctor comic strips. We're doing the final chapter and Wormwood. Now, before we jump into that, I just want to know, can you remember your first exposure to the wider Doctor Who universe, like beyond the TV series? Like, you're first going, oh, it's books, it's comics, it's whatever. That's a bloody good question. Um, I want to say it's the Radio Times comic strip. Right. I think. Because... I sort of got into Doctor Who, as I've said. I mean, anybody that's listened to On the Time Lash knows this story fucking inside out. Um, but I, you know, I watched The Time Meddler in 1992. I think we even talked about it on this the last time I was we on did, as well. Yeah. Um, you know, so watched Time Meddler in 1992. And I think for me, it was it was literally just repeats and UK Gold, and it was like a TV show. And then I think it was, it was sort of a, when the TV movie came out in 96, hmm. that was when I started buying the magazine. That was when I started sort of reading the comic strips. So yeah, I think it was comics for me. And then yeah. you kind of learn about the books and stuff like that. But I think I probably bought my first Doctor Who missing adventure around the same time as the comic strips that we're talking about. I remember buying right. a copy of David A. McKinty's Lords of the Storm um, ah. in the John Menzies in Oban <laughs> on a summer holiday. I remember that. <laughs> And did you read it? Did you devour it? Or did you do what I used to do, is buy them, look at the covers and never read them? Yeah, I think I probably did, to be honest. Or, like, I got about halfway through. I was just like, oh, it's a bit... I think if you're, like, 10, 12 years old, they're actually... Because they're meant for an older audience, yeah. albeit not as old as we are now. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. It, it, it's, it's this thing of, like, it's kind of meant for Doctor Who fans who are probably in their early 20s, I think. Mm-hmm. So... As like a young teenager, I remember trying to read them and feeling they were quite impenetrable. But then, I guess most of Doctor Who fandom was a bit older, and the people buying them were enjoying them. And then I read a lot of the missing and new adventures in my early twenties, and that's when I kind of consumed sure, them. Sure, yeah. They mainly sat on the shelf, just looking pretty. Yeah, I, there's there's some that really grabbed my attention. Definitely, I think more actually the BBC books. Yeah, that kind of Eighth Doctor range, I think was the, was the ones that really kind of grabbed me. Um, but yeah, stuff like the Crystal Bucephalus, you know, yeah. stuff like that. You, you know? can't even, I, couldn't even pronounce it as a twelve-year-old. <laughs> it's like the Doctor buys a galactic restaurant. Let's talk a little bit about. I know, obviously, you've done a TV movie episode on, on the Time Lash, but can you remember experiencing the TV movie and whether you what what you knew about the build-up and stuff like that? How much of a fan were you? How much were you aware? Yeah, of it? I mean, I think I think the TV. I've I've, I've said this somewhere before maybe just in, in conversations with people. But I think the TV movie for me was the, the moment I kind of became a fan. It was like, I was I was really, I liked Doctor Who. I watched as much Doctor Who as I could get hold of mm. up to that point. But when it was like a new thing, you know, it was like, finally, this was going to be my Doctor Who. 
Yeah. That I remember being really excited about that. I remember really being excited that like Doctor Who was back on TV and I'd only been buddy watching it for like four years sporadically. But I do remember the hype around it. I do remember that Radio Times um pull out and sort of just pouring over that for ages. And yeah, just being really excited that yeah, Doctor Who was back and then being immediately disappointed when it didn't continue <laughs> to come yeah. back. Uh and then kinda of having to make do with novels and comic strips and and things like that. But I think I think the eighth doctor, more than more than any other doctor for me, I think opened up my eyes to like the sort of wider spin off media because that was the only way that you could engage with that doctor. Yeah, because we were kind of teased and we all wanted more and then all we've got is comics and books and then later audio plays. And none of them uh, seem to coalesce. <laughs> as well yeah. which is something maybe we, we, we can discuss later on but I did have that kind of thought the other day that it's just like god the eighth doctor I think more than any other doctor it's just it's impossible to, I think somebody has tried to pin down a timeline haven't they really that kind of somehow I can't remember where I, I'm sure I've seen this somewhere somebody tried to pin down like how all the novels and the comic strips and the audios can somehow exist in the same universe but who knows yeah <laughs> I mean, who cares? Ultimately. Well, ultimately, who cares? <laughs> it's only a TV show. So uh, the comics we're looking at, as I said, The Final Chapter and uh, Wormwood. Now, these are from 1998. Doctor Who is dead. It's as dead as it's ever been. Mm-hmm. The TV movie's failed. There's no big finish. It's some comics and it's some books, as we were saying. It, and it's almost like the BBC gives so little of a shit. Doctor Who fans can regenerate the Doctor in comics. Bill Baggs can start an audio range with Sylvester McCoy as basically being the Doctor. <laughs> and nobody seems to care. Yeah. Now, what was your relationship with the programme at this time? Was it, is this now you are a diehard fan, would you say? I've been thinking about this a lot in preparation for this. And... Um... I think this was the height of my Doctor Who fandom. Certainly, as a kid, I'd host a fucking podcast, so it can't be the height. <laughs> can't be the height of my fandom. But you know, as a as a child, well, as a teenager at this point, because I think I, I think ninety eight was possibly the year that I first went to the Edinburgh group. Because I think ninety seven I met Tom Baker. Ninety eight I was going to the group. I was reading the magazine. I was watching UK Gold repeats, reading the you know the BBC books. So like this period is like. So, you know, Doctor Who was a dead thing on the television, but it was some vibrant thing. It was like a series of books and comic strips. that, And I love those. I mean, that's why I chose two comic strips. Like, I love this period in Doctor Who comics because all bets are off. You can do whatever the hell you like because, as you say, nobody's watching. Nobody's like, nobody at the BBC really cares what they're doing with the comic strip. Yeah, it is. It's a bit of a, a wild west in that respect. Like, and Doctor Who is still this property that the BBC have no idea what to do mm-hmm. with this. But I was probably having a similar experience in Birmingham to you, and that I was. We, we've discussed this before, obviously. I was going to a fan group called the Balls of Fenric, picking up books, comics, magazines, and just having that nineties fan experience. I guess. Yeah, it's not as good as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> so. The final chapter ran in Doctor Who magazine 262 to 265 from March to June 1998. News at the time, there was announcement for video spin-off Auton 2 and the documentary release from real time Lost in Space. <laughs> uh, have you consumed either of those? No, but I remember seeing the cover of Lost in Space in Forbidden Planet and just being like, what is this? <laughs> 
I think I do remember reading a Dave Owen review of it at some point in the magazine. And it's kind of a weird kind of... Because it's basically, it's kind of, I mean, you could argue it's ahead of its time. Because is it not that thing that kind of like basically puts Doctor Who's treatment of female characters and sexualization of female characters on trial? Is that not the kind of general basis? That's exactly what it does. But it does it as a mix of talking heads interviews Mm -hmm. and like a a space courtroom drama. So you've got Nicholas Courtney as the judge and then there's various people like Katie Manning shows up, Sophie Aldred shows up. It, it's it's fun and I think it is a bit ahead of its time. I haven't seen it in years so I can't comment on uh, exactly what sort of deep dive it does. Yeah, sure. But uh, I remember it being fun. And then Auton 2, the sequel to the VHS Auton, which we've previously covered on this. <laughs> now, Auton 2 later advertised for some extras to be in a few scenes and they just wanted Doctor Who fans to come down. My dad got drunk and promised me that he would take me. He then spent the next month trying to talk me out of it <laughs> until he just was like, what, else, what can I give you? What do you want to not go to this? And I was like, oh, I want some trainers or something like that. And so I got some trainers. And so I am not in Auton 2, much to my shame. <laughs> oh, that is just, that, there's a parallel universe out there somewhere. Somewhere in the yeah. multiverse. Where you are <laughs> not only hosting one of the foremost... Doctor Who podcast about spin-off media, but you're in Doctor Who spin-off media. <laughs> well, I am actually, I don't like to boast, guys, but uh, <laughs> I, I am in the White Witch of Devil's End. I, I, have, a review, I have a re- review copy of that somewhere in this house, so I'll need to... I, I, I am a ghost in that, because Keith Barnfather was like, I need a location in London that looks like this, have you got any ideas? And I said, oh, there's this place, and it was like a crypt. Mm. I was like, there's this place... And he was like, oh, great. And he was like, do you want to come down for the day, help out? And I was free, so I was like, yeah. And then he was like, right, we need some ghosts. You could be a ghost. <laughs> Which, you know, I'm just living 10-year-old Dylan's dream. Fantastic. Got there eventually. Philip Siegel was still knocking about. I'd completely forgotten about this. But he didn't stop with the TV movie. He was still trying to secure the rights now for a Doctor Who cinema movie. Right. I don't know how far he got, but certainly over these issues of Doctor Who magazine, which is nearly a year, he pops up quite a lot. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you're the BBC, you're not going to give the guy that kind of, in their eyes, botched it the job again the next time, are you? No, probably I mean, not. I know they did that with J&T, but... <laughs> but I think that was out of convenience more than anything else, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it just seems like his passion for it is amazing. There's nothing in all the failed attempts he did and even what we ended up got that said this is the guy that fundamentally should be running Doctor mm-hmm. Who in the 90s. But, uh, you know, had the TV movie gone to a series, maybe we would have seen something interesting and different, but it just seemed different. Other news, Kate Orman and Jonathan Blum got married. A little uh, fan romance there. The Benny books went bi-monthly, which is kind of signalling the the beginning of the end for them, I guess you'd say. They just announced the Professor audios with Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred playing an unnamed companion who became Ace. (laughs) Doctor Who magazine did an awards thing that they normally do, and they were able to look at all of the new adventures and all of the missing adventures because they were complete, and the best new adventure was Human Nature. And the missing adventures, the top four, were all by Gareth Roberts. <laughs> which just wouldn't happen now. <laughs> but I do remember those Gareth Roberts ones being great. Yeah. But, you know, I think uh, he's he's certainly fallen out of favour these days. He has. But I would say I think I think he's a better Doctor Who novelist than a 
Doctor Who screenwriter. I would say that is that's fair. He he captures that season seventeen so well, era yeah. better than anybody else. But I don't think we'll be seeing any more Doctor Who work from him anytime. No, probably not. This is a bit of an oddity. A re- at a recent Doctor Who magazine convention, fake leaflets were distributed, designed and distributed by someone advertising a director's cut of the TV movie and an unedited web planet. And Christ, then... an unedited web planet. Yeah, you know, for, but, I, I mean, mean I've I seen the edited web planet. I don't want to... <laughs> and then another one claimed that Frontiers was being re-released a year, less than a year after its original release, and called for fans to boycott it. But all of it was bollocks. Bizarre. I mean, fandom's bullshit was at least a bit more inventive pre-Twitter. <laughs> but it's just very peculiar. And BBC Worldwide announced an audio starring Tom Baker called Four Times Four. It was announced and then indefinitely postponed due to unforeseen production difficulties. I'm assuming Tom Baker just changed his mind. Yeah, which I don't think you can call unforeseen. Yeah. <laughs> VHS releases were Battlefield and The Mind of Evil. Books, The Eighth Doctor, we had Option Lock, The Longest Day, Dreamstone, and Legacy of the Daleks. I think Legacy of the Daleks was the first Dalek book since Remembrance. Are the Daleks not in Deceit? Or is it they're not in it? They're kind of just off-screen? They're kind of off-screen. The Daleks, I don't think, ever ever show up in the new adventures properly, but they're kind of alluded to. Mm -hmm. But I can't remember whether it's this one that rewrites the whole, oh, most of the 80s didn't happen. I read it and I can't remember a bloody thing about yeah. it. There was two that I remember. And it was, I think, there was that one. And then there's one where the Eighth Doctor goes back to see Susan. That's War of the Daleks, isn't it? And the Master's is in it as war? well? I think so. And it just, it just sounds like Susan's had a horrible time. Hang on, I'm going to have to check this. Is that Legacy or is that War? So Legacy of the Daleks is the one with Susan and the Roger Delgado Master. And the Daleks. What a combination. I mean, we, we have a go at the comic strips now, like the Titan comics. Yeah. For fan wank and, you know, smashing things together. But, you know, just Legacy of the Daleks is an original novel written by John Peel. Uh, it features the Eighth Doctor, Susan, the Master, as the Roger Delgado incarnation, and the Daleks. I mean, that's just a smashing of things yeah. together as well, isn't it? It is. I remember it like susan being like she was much older and david had died Mm because he aged naturally and she hadn't and she had to wear prosthetics in order to kind of blend in because she hadn't aged which is just absolute fucking fan wank of the of the first degree what she should have done topped herself so she could completely change her her appearance regenerate exactly but uh i wasn't writing it so (laughs) uh uh, and then uh, past Doctor books, we have the Seventh Doctor with the Hollow Men, Fourth oh. Doctor, the Eye of he- Heaven, First Doctor, the Witch Hunters, and Third Doctor, Catastrophe. Was the Hollow Men one that you remember particularly well? I loved the Hollow Men when I was a kid. Yeah, God. Yeah. I, so yeah, definitely 1998 was the height of my yeah. platform. Or is this 97 or 98, actually? This is 98. This is 98. So yeah, so yeah, basically. Uh, yeah, the Hollow Men, I loved... The witch, the witch hunters is pretty good as well. I've got no, I, I can see the covers. Yeah, I just can't remember what happened in any of them. I know I consumed quite a few. Of them. So the the Hollow Men is sentient scarecrows and an English boarding right. school, and it's essentially, I guess, human nature, the TV version. <laughs> but it's uh, it's good. And the witch finders is basically a, a Hartnell historical in Salem, which is is very good as well. I think Susan gets put on trial as a witch or something I, remember. I can't remember but that, um, that sounds about right yeah. yeah 
that's kind of what was going on at the time. Uh, since uh, we're crossing over with On The Time Lash once more, we're doing uh, <laughs> theme, themed drinks. So you've been out this morning to get something up, so what are you drinking? So I am drinking. So in the final chapter, for the first couple of episodes, the Doctor spends his time in a bit of a dreamscape, you know? So I have a can of Dreamland Double IPA. Nice. Uh, from the Gypsy Hill Brewery in a collaboration with Flock, which is a local Margate brewery. Ah. And Margate is where I live, so it's a very, really nice. nice. But 8.5%, yeah. so I'm going to... I might just disappear in the second half of the episode. By Wormwood, we'll just be yeah. wasted. Uh, I um, couldn't find anything I felt that was too kind of linked, so I've gone for a radical road because I feel like this story goes down a bit of a radical road at the it end. It does. It does. Tenuous. Tenuous. Also, I'm, I'm, I'm... Stuart Brewing is based in Edinburgh and the radical road is the slightly riskier way to go up Arthur's seat in Edinburgh, which is where I'm from. So thank you for the, <laughs> thank you for the tribute. Nice. Yeah, well, there you go. That's exactly why I chose it. It was for you. TV. With the Doctor incapacitated, Izzy and Faye manage to land the TARDIS on Gallifrey. To aid the Doctor's recovery, the Time Lords place the Doctor's mind in the Matrix, where he's reunited with Rassilon and the higher evolutionaries, who he questions about the threshold and learns of Rassilon's vision of a corrupt and dark Gallifrey. In the real world, an attempt on the Doctor's life by the Elysians is stopped by Shade. While Faye and Izzy meet Xanti and discover the Elysiums are a race of cloned children of Gallifrey kept off the grid in order to stage a coup to restore Gallifrey's status as the rulers of time. They are spearheaded by Gallifreyan High Commanders Overseer Luther and Tubal Cain. With the Doctor back in the real world, he discovers Luther has Xanti, who contains material from the Eye of Harmony within him, hooked up to a giant TARDIS called the Watchtower. Luther intends to materialise the new Gallifrey around the old Gallifrey and make them rulers of all time, but Xanti manipulates the Elysium against Luther. Luther in turn kills Xanti, but not before the power is unleashed and kills Luther also. To contain the energy and prevent the death of Time Lord history, the Doctor must wire his mind into the system and take the TARDIS back to the starting point. He succeeds, restoring Gallifrey, but in doing so, begins to regenerate. So here we are with the final chapter. Uh, you've done a bit of a reread this week, I is that have, right? I have, yeah. So I, I didn't go right the way through that period, but I kind of went back and I was like, right, what are the essential... Because this is essentially the kind of final stages of the, what's known as the kind of threshold arc. Mm. Um, so the threshold of this kind of race of kind of intergalactic troubleshooters and sort of futures consultants that farm themselves out to kind of solve various issues for various alien races. And they first appear in Ground Zero, which I think, I think Ground Zero Part 4 is the first Doctor Who comic strip I ever read. Because my friend... Leo bought, started buying Doctor Who magazine a couple of months before me. I remember being round at his house and he said, oh my God, you've got to see this comic strip, they kill Ace. Yeah. And so that kind of final page where, you know, the Doctor's kind of cradling the, the dead Ace um, in his arms. So basically, the Doctor vows to get revenge on thresholds and track them down. Right. Um, so I was like, right, what comes next? So the next time you meet Threshold is in a comic strip called Fire and Brimstone by Alan Barnes, mm. which is just a corking Dalek story. It's okay. It's really great. Um, I, I know I've read it. I just can't. I, I'm, you know, this this podcast is a yeah. journey of rediscovery <laughs> as much as anything else. So the Dal- the Daleks basically. So the Doctor, in a couple of issues previously, the Doctor arrives on this kind of space station that's kind of built a new sun. 
Yeah. So that Earth can be repopulated again. And then a few issues later, he arrives back again a few years into the future. And he's like, somebody's brought me here deliberately. Like, what's what's going on? Um, and it's the Daleks. And the Daleks are going to use it to invade the multiverse, essentially. And what I find really interesting about this whole reread, all of this is just done again, but less good. In both, te- <laughs> in both televised Doctor Who, Big Finish... Because there was, you know, there's John Dorney's palindrome, which I liked a lot, but it's essentially yeah. the same plot. It's the Daleks. Right. Basically, Fire and Brimstone, the Daleks discover this kind of bastardized, evolved form of themselves from another universe that's fallen through a crack in space time. Is that where we get the, the Daleks? This, the, I can't remember whether it's a main one or just in like one scene. There's a Dalek that is basically based on the spider Dalek design that was in the regeneration. Yeah, role. so there's a so that is it. Yeah, so basically it's a kind of it's got like a Dalek casing with spindly legs, and it's just got like a massive evolved Khaled mutant that you expose that you can see. So they've discovered this thing and they have to destroy it because it's an abomination, and so they're going to invade the multiverse. And the threshold are there um, to basically make sure that the Daleks don't achieve this goal and that they're wiped out right and they've been promised a gift from the time lords so it's like oh yeah time war <laughs> <laughs> we get to the final chapter because the, the end of the end of fire brimstone the doctor says okay i know what i need to do now but not yet and it's obviously he has to go back to gallifrey and he eventually goes back to Gallifrey because in quite a fun sort of ghost light style adventure called Tooth and Claw, which is kind of like a sort of mashup of the island of Dr. Moreau and uh, ghost light and sort of World War Two spy movies. The doctor gets turned into a vampire. <laughs> yes, of course. And he has to then go back to Gallifrey to, to be sort of healed because um, he's been given this poison to kind of cure his vampirism. But obviously it's... So yes, and then we arrive at the final chapter, and Izzy, Faye, the Doctor, they're off to Gallifrey um, to heal the Doctor. I remember reading this at the time, and I was so... Because, I mean, like, as I said at the start the start of this, like, this is my era of Doctor Who. This is, like, this was, like, new Doctor Who for me. It was it was th- these comics. Um, and it, it's, like, it's a season finale. Th- this and yeah. Wormwood. Well, I guess in the kind of, in the 90s, you would have that kind of Star Trek The Next Generation model where I guess, you know, you could argue the final chapter is the end of one season. Yeah. There's a massive cliffhanger, which is the Doctor regenerates. <laughs> and then, you know, part the, the next series opens with Wormwood and we, we find out kind of what's what's going on. Because I think there is a, there is a note from the editor, who at this point was Gary Gillett, I think just before he left. And he's, you know, there is that thing of like, I'm giving them a break before they start on the next epic run of adventures. So the final chapter is the kind of season finale. And it's, I just love it. I love it. And I reread it, reread all of these stories this week. And it's just properly exciting Doctor Who in a way that I think at that point, because it's visual as well. I mean, that, that, obviously, the, the thing about comic strips is it's a visual medium. And that was the best equivalent for me, I think, growing up without new Doctor Who. It was comic strips. Yeah. Because you had this amazing you know art style and these great stories and there was they could take risks and they could do stuff because who gives a shit the show's not in the telly anymore there's no brand there's no brand manager sort of breathing down the neck or anything like that 
exactly. Revisiting this, it was interesting because I didn't do a full read through. So it took me a moment to kind of, you, you know, just those areas of my brain to open up and for things to come flooding back. So I was like, what's going on? Then all of a sudden I'd be like, oh, but as, <laughs> sure. as with a lot of the, uh, I forgot how interlinked the Doctor Who comics were because this has callbacks right to the 80s, mm -hmm. like yeah. in terms of the comic strips. So like many of the uh, Doctor Who comic strips of the 80s, including ones we've covered in here, it's quite heavy on Gallifrey mythology. You get Shade, who was in the Fifth Doctor stories. Uh, we get Rassilon, like he appears a couple of times in the 80s comics as well. And Tubal Cain is from the Stockbridge Horror, which me and Jack covered previously, and he yes. explodes these time missiles or whatever, time torpedoes mm -hmm. over Gallifrey. And he doesn't need to be there, it could be anybody. But it's just like, what a lovely little nod yeah. to kind of the legacy of these comics. It's because I think, you know, at this point, the only people reading those comic strips are people that have probably been reading those comic strips since the 80s. So why not yeah. kind of do that um, and sort of tie it all together? What do you think about how Gallifrey's depicted here? I quite like it. I, I, like, I like this idea of, you know, so much time, because it's kind of a kind of future Gallifrey is the kind of yeah. inference that it's like it's not necessarily you know a few years after the five doctors or trial of a time lord or whatever it 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 feels like it's kind of far off in the future um and the doctors kind of just become a myth yeah you know i quite like that and and there's a thing you know, this whole aspect of so that in the first episode when he arrives he's taken to the hospital um, and news breaks out in Gallifrey, and there's this kind of like Fox News kind of broadcasting <laughs> station, and there's a, a sort of expert on there talking about how the Doctor is just a myth and and blah blah blah. And there's the guy I've forgotten his name now, Zanti. Yeah, but he's like a massive Doctor. He's essentially a Doctor Who fan. You know, he's yeah. he's been living out his life in the basement of in this sort of basement. Yeah, going no, the Doctor's real. The Doctor is this person to look up to. This this ideal, you know, hero figure. A conspiracy th theorist, almost. Yeah. yeah. Of, like, believing in, in, in the myth. But I, lo I love the fact that the Doctor's a myth to his own people. I mm. think at this point, we know so much about Gallifrey, and we know so much about the Doctor, that kind of inverting that, his status within the show, and going, okay, well, he's actually a myth to his own people. They don't know much. Yeah. Like, there's a whole story arc you could go down with that, of, like, the Doctor being kind of a myth amongst his own people, rather than as we often get it, Earth people as well. Yes, you know? like yeah. The, the new series does a lot of oh, and he, the, the, he, this mysterious man came, and oh, he, he's called the Doctor, and like it does a lot of self mythologizing on mm -hmm. on the character of the Doctor. So I think I think that you could explore that a, a bit more within this within the Time Lord Society. Yeah, definitely. I do think the new series pulls a lot from the Scalafrey as well. I think it does. Like, I mean, this is essentially. Well, I was I was going to say this is essentially hell bent. Yeah, it's it's yeah. the Doctor returns to Gallifrey to seek revenge for the death of his companion, because he's aware <laughs> the Time true. Lords have worked with the Threshold to mm. rid rid the universe of the Dalek, and that's kind of why he's there. He's there by accident because of what happened, but he's always been heading to this confrontation, and that like that's really interesting. I think these two stories so much is is sort of pulled from yeah from it. There's there's loads like and also Luther's whole plot to essentially yeah. kind of move Gallifrey, the present Gallifrey, to sort of supersede the original Gallifrey and yeah. turn the whole planet into a TARDIS, that's the end of time. 
You know, it is, it is. <laughs> there's all all this stuff in here that um, whether or not Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat have pulled from these comic strips, I think they probably have, um, or it's just. I think it just sits in your brain as a fan. And I think if you were put in charge of Doctor Who tomorrow, you'd probably do something and then go, oh, actually, I read that in a comic 20 years ago. Yeah, almost certainly. Yeah, I don't think it's a kind of a deliberate crib, but yeah, it's definitely something that's in your mind. But even Gallifrey looks like this imposing alien city. It's not the lounge of Rassilon that it becomes (laughs) in the 80s. And, um, you know, even the Gallifrey and guards look like the ones that we get in Heaven Sent Mm -hmm. or Hellbent, whichever one it is, Heaven Sent. They're much um, more militaristic like rather than these kind of yeah. like slightly fey <laughs> soldiers yeah. with feathers in their caps and all that kind yeah, of stuff you bit, get in the bit camp. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also those lovely little throwbacks of like, they, you do get the old Panopticon in episode three, I think it is, and it's the deadly yes. assassin one and stuff. Again, inferring that we are in the far future of Gallifrey. Yeah, and they've built um, over, they've sort of like concreted over the old Panopticon and they've sort of built these huge skyscrapers and, and all that kind of thing. It's such a great representation of Gallifrey. And like, I, as I've got older, I'm definitely kind of more of the school of that. I don't give a shit about Gallifrey and the Time Lords. And, but mm. see, as a kid reading that, like, it was just like manna from heaven, like to kind of yeah. have this like really strong mythology story, this kind of return you know, to the Doctor's home planet and it not being quite the place you remember from the TV stuff. Things have happened and it's a bit more futuristic, it's a bit more militaristic. It's how you want it to be. Yeah. It's yeah. how you want it to be because it's it's just Gallifrey in the TV series, I think possibly except in the war games and the Deadly Assassin. Mm-hmm. And Deadly Assassin's more to do with the story rather yes. than the the actual society. As a kid, I don't think I ever got over the disappointment of the invasion of time of like... <laughs> Going to Gallifrey and just being like, oh, this is uh, dull and these people are idiots. And like everything they were trying to do was cool, like the different levels of society and different things. But you're just like, this does not work on any kind of level of execution. I think there's something, I think Ben and I talked about it maybe when we did the Invasion of Time. It was either that of Arkham or Arkham Infinity, I can't remember. But it's like, I think the writers in this sort of 70s and 80s get kind of, hung up on this idea of like the doctor left Gallifrey because they're a bunch of boring cunts who just sit yeah. around all day, you know, with non non intervention, don't get involved in things, you know, and it's just a stuffy old society. But actually I think what this does is it shows that there is a whole subsection of of Gallifrey in society that's just like, we're the fucking lords of time. Why yeah. are we not doing anything with that why are we not just like out there like oppressing our will on everybody else yeah um that's such a great and there's such a great conflict in that and and that's way more interesting way more interesting than just yeah. like, oh they were just a bunch of boring bastards who sat around like, like here we've got this whole secret society the secret sect of gallifrey society who have cloned children kept them off the register that they're going to use as kind of their army to do a military coup like whether whether that's a time lord society or another alien society or even you do it in, on earth that's a cool plot mm, to have yeah. within doctor who i was a bit like you but for many years i was like doctor who doesn't need the time lords but i've kind of had a bit of a u-turn on that recently and i think what since they killed them all again yeah <laughs> Yeah, um, and again, you know, yeah. one day we'll, we'll we'll do a podcast about the timeless children, and I'll be its staunchest defender. But um, <laughs> I think 
in order for Doctor Who to survive at the moment in the current television landscape, it really needs a strong mythos running through it. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gone as far as we can of that mythology just being the Doctor. And I think... I, I'm not saying they're necessarily doing it right on TV now or doing it right in this version of the comics or that version of Big Finish, but I think there is something really cool to be done with them that makes the Doctor Who universe feel a bit more whole and kind yeah. of intertwined. Because, I mean, I've always, I've always felt that about the Time War range in Big Finish. There's so much great stuff you can do with that. Yeah. And there was occasionally some really good audio dramas about you know the the conflict of this idea that you know there's sort of tenets of like non-intervention and what happens when you become a warlike race yeah and you use that power you know there's really interesting stuff like i think it's something that star trek deep space nine did where it says well yeah sure it's all very interesting to have this whole like peaceful society that's based on exploration but what happens when you're pitted against somebody that just wants to destroy everything you are how do you yeah. then have that utopian vision within a kind of warlike setting and i think the best time war plays do that but there's way more scope for them to yeah. do more imaginative stuff with them. i'm still in the minority that i love day of the doctor but i do think its resolution of how it handles the time war is kind of it doesn't land for me mm. because there's this whole time war of you just you expect the fabric of time and space to be pulled apart and lots of weird things happening and they just blow something up and that's most of the time war plays to be fair yeah that true. it's just daleks screaming at each other or like you know the john hurt ones i've listened to them all once that first box set i remember being so disappointed but by the later ones um towards the tail end of what i think he does like 14 plays 12 plays something like that yeah 12 i think yeah. i remember by the end of the say the last box set and a half being like they've really got a handle on the time war here like they're doing some really interesting things with time i think there was one with leela where she'd been lost and kind of lost her memory and stuff like that yeah and it was like okay, this is really cool, and then obviously, sadly, John Hurt died, and we don't really get any more Selfish bastard. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's all those Doctor Whos. They die eventually. I've still never forgiven John Pertwee for dying before Big Finish started. God, yeah, imagine. He would have bloody loved that, wouldn't (laughs) he? Of course he would. He would would have been there. He would have done 30 plays a year. (laughs) Anyway, we digress. So we've talked a little about Gallifrey, Let's talk about the companions here. Mm-hmm. So we've yeah. got Izzy and Faye. Faye, I completely forgot she existed until I picked up this comic. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, because Faye's an interesting one because she only comes in, or they only come in, I should yeah, maybe say. Yeah. That's that's probably more accurate. They only come in in the story previous to this, yeah. Tooth and Claw. Um, but they're kind of a... It's kind of like in that kind of good man goes to war sense. Yeah. The, the doctors met them before but in an adventure you've not seen yeah um and so the doctor's summoned by Faye to this island and they get involved in this adventure so yeah so Faye's not i think that's it and then i think they recur through various comics but they're not yeah. in one they're not in the last 12th doctor comic strip quite possibly i know yeah. izzy was I, I know izzy was but i can't remember if if fade or fade but we'll get to that later is or not i don't think they have an awful lot to do here the companions the story is very much heavy kind of it's heavy on its exposition it's heavy on its time lord mythology the doctor's off in his world but i don't feel like the companions are fully utilized Hmm. 
I don't think Izzy is, which is a shame because Izzy is such a interesting companion because she is this kind of genre savvy. Yeah. In the way that Bill kind of was, but they never quite pushed it. Only in like Empress of Mars, which is like two episodes before she leaves and suddenly yeah. she's like to the point that you think, oh, was she supposed to be Shona from from last Christmas? Because she's so suddenly just all about, you know, pop culture reference. But you have Izzy as this kind of genre savvy person on the planet of the Time Lords, you know, with this kind of contemporary worldview. And you do kind of wish she had a bit more to do. I mean, Faye throws themselves into the time yeah the sort of dreamscape and to try and sort of like help the doctor and and all that kind of thing but yeah ultimately this is a story about the doctor and i think by necessity because obviously wormwood's the story that comes after yeah he's hiding a lot of stuff Mm. as well so yeah so the companions do feel a bit sidelined but they're great companions they are i think um I mean, Izzy is like they know they knew what they were doing there. They're like, we're going to make a hot mm-hmm. woman for nerd boys to lust after. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny looking back at some of those old Doctor Who magazines. Like I, t- I tweeted it yesterday, but I and I sent you it in a sort of a chat we have. But it's one of the magazines that I think Wormwood's in. There's a, a reader's letter about how if Doctor Who's ever to come back, it could learn something from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it goes on this whole thing about how great Buffy the Vampire Slayer is. I say, oh, well, thanks for uh, giving us an excuse to post this picture of uh, Sarah <laughs> Michelle Keller. <laughs> yeah, the 90s. What a it, just wouldn't, it just wouldn't happen now. No. It just wouldn't happen now. There's also a missing episode to this story. Are you aware of this? So there was supposed to be a, uh, a part in between three and four, so it would have been three and five. Uh-huh. And it's basically the watchtower, that's called the watchtower, isn't it? The, yeah. the kind of giant TARDIS thing. It lands in this void, this white void, and it's where the souls of the worst dispersed Time Lords, dispersed by the Time Lords, went. And whoever was editing it didn't like it and that became the basis of Neverland of course because that's also written by Alan Barnes isn't it yeah so yeah so there's that so let's talk a bit about Alan Barnes because he is quite instrumental in the Eighth Doctor's world Mm -hmm. like he basically oversees and writes the along with Scott Gray the majority of the first lot of Eighth Doctor comics yeah he oversees the first lot of Eighth Doctor audios so in a weird way he's kind of like the showrunner for the Eighth Doctor a little bit in kind of he came up with all the original companions that we get for the Eighth Doctor up to a certain point where now he's got 57 of them Um, (laughs) and he just outside of the books he's really the guy he's almost guiding two separate narratives two separate versions of the Mm -hmm. of the Eighth Doctor so what do you think of Alan's story here and his work in general Uh, so I've obviously I've read quite a bit of Alan Barnes this week Um, obviously Scott Gray writes Wormwood but um I just think there's just a real... It's the modern approach to Doctor Who that I think you want at that point. Yeah. Like, there's a great balance of kind of mythology and referencing back to sort of previous adventures, but kind of doing them with a kind of modern twist. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like I say, you know, Fire and Brimstone, I think, is, is, is... Forget all your big Finnish audios and your legacy of the Daleks and all that kind of thing. I think it is one of the great Eighth Doctor... Dalek stories yeah and um I can't remember who writes Children of the Revolution which is the one a few years later but yeah I think he just has a really good handle on writing Doctor Who but also writing Doctor Who for a comic strip medium like he's obviously spent 
a lot of time reading like Alan Moore and Grant Morrison and all these other guys and and you do feel a real influence of that but also a kind of 90s style genre television aspect to it as well it's yeah i'm a big a big fan of because i mean like i said before this is i'm a bit biased because this was yeah <laughs> my hero of doctor who but i yeah i think i think he has such a great grasp on on what the show means as, as a as a comic strip i think really more than anything else well they said what they were trying to do with this this arc and these stories is do a big kind of crisis on infinite earth or whatever it is like a big mm-hmm. u.s comic style event which i think they certainly pull off although obviously yeah. it's not and i think the the danger there would have been just to go well let's do a multi-doctor story on gallifrey or something like that which is what titan comics do yeah. every summer they do that they do that they, they go well we're going to do the big marvel dc style event comic and what it is is we just have all the different doctor ranges meet up and it's like, eh, fine, but that's diminishing returns. I also think within this kind of sci-fi, heavy kind of sci-fi Gallifrey story, it finds enough time to kind of do suitably Doctor Who stuff. So with the dream thing, you've got like the Doctor as Gulliver with the tiny little people around. Yeah. Him. And then you've got like a Mad Hatter and things like that. And that those are the things, the elements that separate it from... A slightly more just generic sci-fi comic, I think. Yeah, definitely. There's a yeah, there's a real sort of fantasy element to it, and and there's just great cliffhangers. Like Alan Barnes knows how to do a great Doctor Who cliffhanger. Yeah, which is which is perfect for a serialized comic, you know. Because um, yeah, I love that image when Faye gets into the dreamscape and it's the Doctor pinned down by all these guys with yeah sort of big sort of dagger things. Uh, it's great. Yeah, you know. it's it's it looks fantastic, and it, that that's the sort of stuff like as a cliffhanger and this and the other that you're like, oh, what a that's a really kind of it's just a uniquely Doctor Who image, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Luther. So Luther, yeah, okay. As, as far as I know, Luther's not been in anything else. I don't think so. No, I think he is just the villain he, of the piece. He's like but, yeah. he's drawn really well. And he's got as much character as you can give a character like that. But he is just kind of the generic baddie time lord. It's more his motive of like, as you say, that's very kind of um, end of time that I Mm -hmm. think kind of drives him. But he's just more a siphon for kind of the plot. He is a bit. I mean, I think there's something interesting in that, you know, you've obviously got the Castellan, but they've kind of farmed out the kind of running of the city to Luther. Yeah. Which is essentially just handing the keys of the asylum over yeah. to the most insane guy there. <laughs> um, that's quite interesting, but um, yeah, he's a good he's a good foil for the Doctor. I think you know he's not up there with the Master or the Rani yeah. or anything like that. But again, it's that kind of thing of a Time Lord who's just like, why the hell are we just not using yeah this technology that we've created to you know be the best we could be to you know take over other races to to do all this so yeah so he's a good follower to the doctor in that regard because it is about we're going to basically dictate how time should run for the whole of the universe you know so the doctor himself is both kind of absent from the story but also there because he's he's absent Mm. from the main thing on gallifrey but he's in this in this dream world but i think he still has enough time to feel kind of suitably doctorish but going back to it, obviously I know that he regenerates at the end. But 
revisiting it, the only thing I felt that was slightly disappointing is that actually, because you know it's a fake regeneration coming, it doesn't feel like a grand finale for his doctor whereas i think you could have built that up a little bit more and kind of made him made, made it put more peril and so more... yeah it's interesting reading because obviously red i think it, i think it basically was fire and brimstone tooth and claw then this i think it's maybe like a little short one-shot comic in the middle it's interesting because they kind of seed the events of this through that you know i think at the end of fire and brimstone the doctor the threshold tried to convince the doctor to use this device that will basically save the day but kill him right and he almost does it but at the last minute figures out a way around it and then tooth and claw he's he takes this poison to save the day and puts himself at risk and then that's where so it feels like all the way through these stories running up to this in the way that you would do with a kind of season of doctor who they're kind of teeing up with an audience an idea that maybe the doctor's gonna die right okay so it's interesting to read it in context that makes a lot of sense and i mean i remember reading at the time and just being blown away by that that yes yeah i mean it's just been like what it's bonkers (laughs) and also like when as you go through that pat that whole page of like this regen and you're not sure what's happening at first can remember at the time kind of going this is interesting what's happening and then nick briggs's face which actually doesn't look that much like Nick Briggs in that picture. Yeah. And I, it's a really bold thing to do. And I think it's, it remains one of the best kind of Doctor Who cliffhangers because it's a surprise regeneration, which people always yeah. talk about, but we're never really going to get. Yeah, we'll never get that because of brand, because of promotion and branding and, yeah. and all this kind of thing. You want to announce the new Doctor early. So the idea of a fake regeneration of the Doctor was proposed by Scott Gray to Gary Gillett back in 1994 for a seventh Doctor comic strip and it would have been a part of the Doctor being a great manipulator and realising he had to kind of fake a regeneration and go into hiding and fake Doctor blah 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 but Gillett remembered remembered it in 96 after the TV movie and decided the fake Doctor should resemble Nick Briggs's fan audio Doctor who'd already been shown (laughs) as a potential future Doctor in Party Animals now we'll get to Nick Briggs as the Doctor in the next Mm -hmm. one but as a stunt, I think this is fucking brilliant. It's amazing. And it's the only time in the show's history I think you could have done it. You couldn't do that in the comics now, because if they did even if they did it, everybody'd know, oh, it's a fake regeneration. Yeah. The closest you get, the closest you get to this on like a TV level, is the end of the Stolen Earth. Yeah. Where you've announced that David Tennant's leaving, you have this cliffhanger where he's been shot by a Dalek. Yeah. And he's about to regenerate, and the and people just went mental for that. Yeah. You know, like oh my god, we're going to find out the new Doctor Who. Yeah, like next Saturday, and it, it obviously it doesn't come to pass, and all stuff like. I think that was the only other time you could do it when it's so popular. Yeah, and you've got to a point where like people are following the the production of that show so closely that you kind of just be, you can play with those expectations slightly. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like in a comic strip where there's, there's no parent show anymore. Um, you can just do whatever the hell you like. Yeah. You know, uh, it's yeah, it's great. Do you think that the comic could have survived with a non-television doctor at the time, be it Nick Briggs or anybody else? That's yeah, that is an interesting question. I think I don't know. I th- I think it would really need to because I guess this is 2 years after the TV movie. 
and every other bloody week, month in Doctor Who magazine is like, oh, there's a film on the way, there's a TV series on the way. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I think I think at this point we're still in that stage where you need to have had a TV doctor to invest in. Yeah. And you bring that investment over into the comic strip. I think it's a lot harder because Doctor Who is originally and will always be a television show at its heart. Um, and so as a result of that, I think, yeah, I, I think if it moved completely into comics, like, say this happened, say Eccleston never came as the Doctor, Russell T. Davis never took it over, 2005, whatever, we're still without Doctor Who. Yeah. I think you would then start to go, well, we can't just have... <laughs> We've only got so many <laughs> promotion shots to kind of draw impressions of Paul McGann. Yeah. You know, maybe it's time that we create our own Doctor. But I think what people forget is, as well, people were still questioning the canonicity of Paul McGann at this point. That is true. Um, And I think, had the TV movie not featured Sylvester McCoy, I think there's a strong chance if, when the new series came back and they didn't definitely reference Paul McGann in I think the first time you see all the old doctors is in the next doctor oh human nature yeah which human nature he's there in the book isn't he and stuff like yeah, that and then you see but them it's like, that kind of pencil sketch yeah. so yeah, yeah so that was kind of I mean most of us felt he was the doctor but um, yeah. there was still I think in the press as well like there was always a case of oh does queer as folk I'm pretty sure in queer as folk they go Paul McGann doesn't count yeah. um but I think they do yeah I think had Sylvester not been in that movie, there's a strong chance that Paul McGann could have been consigned to the same dimension as the Sharker Doctor. Yeah, yeah, you're right, I think. Um, I mean, yeah, if the TV movie had just started with, say, the Eighth Doctor bringing the, the Master's remains to Gallifrey and everything happens as it happens, you could have resigned that as a one off attempt to try and reinvigorate Doctor Who that didn't work. And let's we we can try again, you know. Now, there was a rumour, and I think this is true, that the new adventures were going to try and regenerate McCoy into David Troughton. Yes, I I remember hearing that. To the point that apparently there was a photo shoot done with him in the costume that they could use as reference. But I think they I think if it It was nixed by the BBC, wasn't it? Was it nixed by the BBC? That was, I think that I, I I feel like that's what I'd read was that yeah that was the plan because I think to kind of try and reinvigorate the range they wanted to kind of have their own doctor and so they sort of did this photo shoot with David Troughton and then the BBC were like no <laughs> like, <laughs> it's it still needs to be Sylvester McCoy because presumably they were still there was still probably people within the BBC harbouring this idea that maybe it would one day come back. Yeah, and I think also, I think somebody was obviously overseeing the brand not in the way it is now. No. But somebody must have been sat there going, oh actually we need it to, we're not almost, I could almost imagine them in a stupid way going, we're not wasting a regeneration on a book as if it matters, but (laughs) yeah. Those are the sorts of things that the BBC seemed obsessed with, and it's why you end up well, with the TV movie the way it is, giving you all that kind of. Yeah, canon. I mean, and I think also you, you get away with it in a comic strip because again, the a comic strip is a visual medium. Mm. I think it's much harder to kind of do 
a regenerate. I mean, I know they did do it, didn't they? The um, is it Spiral Scratch? Spiral Scratch by Gary Russell, right? That basically does the Sixth Doctor's regeneration into Sylvester McCoy. That's been done twenty times now. But I mean, that's <laughs> been done twenty times now. But you know, I, I think a comic strip, a regeneration, is like a big, shocking visual thing, because that's it's it's you know, and we see it in the TV. I'm too. A fault now i think you know this kind of massive rush of energy and the, this changing face and how do you convey that in prose mm. um you know you 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 read a target novelization of planet spiders or twice upon a time or whatever yeah. you know and that's fine because you've already seen the tv version and you're bringing that knowledge of it to the story um i think i think to kind of write a brand new regeneration in a novel is a lot more of a difficult prospect yeah yeah i think i don't know and how do you i feel it's a lot harder to establish the doctor post regenerate i mean good writing can do a certain amount in prose but mm. i just i think everybody needs that template don't they of a, a performance yeah yeah i think especially in novels i think you know at least again with with a comic strip i, I still don't think you could have got away with it but you would at least have a look and a and I guess you have the covers of the novels and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, I think it's that Terence Dix thing, isn't it? Of kind of you know, you can write the Doctor, no matter who the, the actor is, you can write the Doctor. Yeah. And so to kind of regenerate the Doctor in the novel, you would just still be like, well, why isn't this Sylvester McCoy? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. because. Yeah, no, it it doesn't make sense. I I think, and I think they were wise to nix it. Is there anything else you want to say about the final chapter? Uh, it's, no, I think I think I think we covered it quite. Is it a clanger or a banger? It's a banger. It's an man, absolute banger. Absolute banger. Too, too, too hot for TV. The next comet we're looking at is Wormwood, which came directly after this. It ran from July to November 1998 in Doctor Who magazines 266 to 271. Lots of exciting news at the time. At the Cannes Film Festival, David Thompson, head of BBC Films, said they were in the early stages of planning a lavish Doctor Who feature film uh, in the budget region of £6 million. Now, that's a bit of a weird number to, for me, because the TV movie was £5 million. So with that extra million, <laughs> what's it, it getting sound you? sound lavish, does it? Yeah. it? That's getting you maybe like a cool CGI alien race. And maybe a yeah. slightly more famous doctor, like that—that that is literally what. So it's very, <laughs> it's very odd. But over the course of these magazines, it goes on. It goes. Hal Films have been named as a potential co-producer of the film, and it mentions their connection with Miramax. Now, Miramax—the way film distribution works—is that they're not going to have a company like them aren't going to have a distribution deal with Miramax. Miramax yeah. will just pick up one of their titles so i think they're kind of reaching there for uh like oh miramax are going to do a doctor who film no. and also like i've been to the Cannes film festival i'm not i'm not saying that just to be like <laughs> <laughs> don't you know um but you know you walk around the marche you know in Cannes, and it's full of just fucking just mocked up billboards of stuff yeah. that's never going to see the light of day because either they're looking for production funding or you know whatever it's like that Bob Baker Dave Martin K nine film yeah that's been doing the rounds for like a decade now I think we'll get um, onto that as well in a bit but uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, oh yes we will yeah because there's yeah okay 
it's just it's all bluster, isn't it? It's all bluster it to try and get more funding. And I've been to a fair few film festivals. I work in that kind of area, and it's full of people talking absolute shit about things that are never <laughs> going to happen. Like, yeah. if in fact, I would say that if you want to get a film made. The worst place you can go is some of these film festivals, unless you are a seasoned film producer who has the connections. And truthfully, you don't even need to go there if you're that person. Then Alan Ayres of the BBC, head of drama, said, anything you may... This is an official statement. Anything you may read about casting or budget is total bollocks. (laughs) Which, can you imagine? What was his name? Sorry, what was his name? Alan. Uh, Alan Ayres, he was the head of uh, BBC drama. I'd like to go for a pint with Alan Ayres. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting that that's the official line given to an official yeah. licensed Absolute magazine. Bollocks. And then in 269, Alan Yentob, who's at some sort of TV festival, is cornered by a Doctor Who magazine journalist who was there because they were writing for something else. It was in the middle of a, like a panel talking about, I don't know, BBC One dramas or something like that. Yeah. And he was caught off guard, it says it in the thing, and quite shocked to be asked about the future of Doctor Who. And he said, only a significant investment from a co-producer could guarantee its continuation, which I think is probably fair at that time. And is probably also where we're at now. Yeah, (laughs) very, very true. Um, I I do wonder how far these talks went. I know we talk Mm. about a potential film a lot on this this podcast. That's what I love about listening to this podcast, is that like pretty much every episode... It's always like, oh, you know, there was a film mooted. Yeah. Um, because it's just always a thing, isn't it? It's just like, especially the nineties. I think you know, they, I think they must have just got to a point where they're just like, well, look, it's never going to come back to TV. Could we launch it as a movie franchise? Yeah. And I, I do think nowadays you could, given the right amount of funding and and promotion and stuff like that. But in the nineties, probably not. No, I mean there was a kind of a hankering for nostalgia a bit, especially like when you get kind of the Avengers movie and you've had the Batman yeah, movies and things true. like that. So people were looking for properties and the, yeah. and the early superhero films of the, of the 90s. But they're very much, if you think about those films, they're very much not only reboot the property, but they don't do it. Like if you take the 90s Captain America, mm, yeah. they don't take the property as it is. They kind of pick elements from it that they like and go, right, we're going to do something different with it. The same with The Punisher, where he's barely The Punisher at all. Yeah. Whereas now, people want... If we if we get a Doctor Who film, much like Marvel, it's got to be the safest version of that thing that ticks all the boxes that everybody knows that Doctor Who comes with a TARDIS, there's Daleks, yeah. there's a... You know, so that, yeah, that's you're right. I mean, I almost I almost punched my uncle in the face at a wake recently. <laughs> um, wow. Because he was banging on about how the Marvel films aren't rigidly following the canon. And I was like, yeah, because they're they're their own interpretation of those stories. <laughs> like, the movie is the movie, the comics are the comics. Don't be such a fucking dick. But they're, they're still very safe. I think we've yeah. had this conversation before. Like, they're still so close to the original mm. source material. But also, you can't... If you were going to do a Doctor Who movie tomorrow even if you thought the best version of Doctor Who was the comics, you wouldn't just adapt this comic run. You no, would go no. you would go, Well, I really like that they did a fake regeneration and the I like the idea of the threshold, but actually maybe the threshold could be something else and you know, and do something new with it. I think the threshold would be as they are in this, that you're kinda of big bad. You yeah. Know, you, they would they would be kind of seeded through the films. 
to an eventual kind of um, yeah confrontation, which is what we get in Wormwood. Yeah. Very, very shortly. Uh, that wasn't the only Doctor Who film that there was talk about at the time, though. And I was I I know that this is true to the point of I know these words came out of the man's mouth because I was at the convention where he said it. Oh right, okay. Michael Sheard <laughs> uh, said he'd been at. For is he? He said he'd been approached to play the Doctor in a film that would pick up the rights to the third Peter Cushing film that was never made. So what was that? The Chase, wasn't it? That was an adaptation of the Chase. Yes. Yeah. I think this was high hopes on some but some fans kind of wish list this fan placed a notice in the producers alliance newsletter this guy his name was michael henderson of chaos films plc looking for an established producer or business partner now i just want to take a, a sidestep into an alternative universe where somebody manages to secure the funds and the rights to make a film and they go and through this loophole in a kind of um what was the James Bond film, You Only Live Twice, where they remade Thunderball with... Uh, no, that was... Uh, never, say never Say Never Again. again. So yeah. that kind of loophole. And they get they, they get $20 million. And they go, who are you getting for the Doctor? Oh, we thought Michael Sheard. Mr. Bronson as the Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Adolf Hitler from The Last Crusade. <laughs> like, that, that man is not getting you the funding you need or the star power. I'm not I'm nothing against his acting abilities, but it's just odd. And he was the best part of seventy at the time as well. Mm. Like my friend Martin used to drink whiskey on the floor of his kitchen with uh, <laughs> Michael Sheard when he used to visit Edinburgh. Those were the days. What a guy! What a guy! <laughs> but unfortunately, it never happened. So <laughs> I imagine because those rights probably expired long ago. Yeah. Do you know what I love though? I love there's um there's a Peter Cushing fan account on Facebook and they occasionally share like kind of fan art of like so like a sort of Peter Cushing version of the web planet. Yes, yeah. You know? I'm like, yeah, I'd love to see that. Yeah. I mean I don't really like the web planet, but <laughs> I'd quite like to see a big sort of amicus version of it. That'd be quite fun. Have you ever seen the fake trailer on YouTube for Daleks versus Mekons? Which is the third, yes. kind of the third film. It's a lot of fun. Like, yeah, great fun. Yeah, they did. A, they did another. Somebody else did one of um, the invasion. Really, that's cool. So it was going to be like a Peter Peter Cushing version of the invasion. So they they made well, I mean there wasn't, but they yeah. made a trailer as if you know there was. It looks it looks good. Great. I I love all stuff like that. The the what could have been. Yeah. S- speaking of what could have been, <laughs> after a year on hold of a proposed spin-off series about K nine, it's now back on track. Work will begin this month on a five-minute CGI live-action showreel that should secure funding. They eventually secured funding for this TV series in 2009. So, <laughs> 11 years. After K-9 had been back on yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> I, that series, I like. It's, just, it's so weird that in 1998, I would have watched every episode of a K-9 <laughs> spin-off series for kids. Flash forward to 2009... I watched the trailer in about 10 minutes of the first episode and just went, nah. I've not seen any of it. I remember there was a rumour that the Sea Devils were in it, and that was the most interesting thing that I'd heard. But What what I read was there is a throwback to old Doctor Who in every episode, but it's so minor because they don't have the rights <laughs> to do it. So yeah. there's something that vaguely looks like an axon in an episode and probably something that vaguely right. looks like a Sea Devil or something. But I, I just love that they're still flogging this dead horse. I know. Even now? Yeah. It's bonkers. I mean, one of them is dead. Yeah, but yeah. it's absolutely bonkers. But 
I mean, also they wrote they wrote Wallace and Gromit, <laughs> so you think that would be like enough to anyway? But yeah. I guess we've got to be realistic and go. No one wants to see a series about a fucking robot dog. No. <laughs> It was announced that Paul McGann would be returning to the role of the Doctor, sort of, as he was recording some audiobooks for the BBC, a three-story collection that became Earth and Beyond. So that was the first time he'd returned to the role as the Doctor. Doctor Who magazine announced Fitz Craner would be becoming a companion in the BBC books, described as a cross between Villa from Blake 7 and Adam Adamant, which is just (laughs) classic Doctor Who fans with their cultural reference points always 20 years out of date at least. Very, very weird. Oxford Brooks University did a stage performance of, of Tomb of the Cybermen, another one of those stage shows yeah. lost to time. God, that would have been interesting to watch. Yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's there's been quite a few of them over the years, especially during the '90s, and I would I'd love to see mm-hmm. if they're any good. Yeah, you know that question when like at conventions would say, "If you had a TARDIS, where would you, where would you go?" <laughs> I'd be like to watch. Oxford Brooks University's production of Tomb of the Cybermen. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. In 1998. <laughs> a planned BBC Two documentary was announced that never happened on Doctor Who Monsters that was supposed to be fronted by Leon Herring. Wow, okay. Well, who did eventually feature in Doctor Who. In uh, real time, wasn't it? it yeah, um, yeah. But unfortunately, that, that never... Well, because they used to work with Tom Baker, didn't they? On the um, strain... What's it? Uh, Lionel Nimrod's... Curious World or something like okay. that. It's like a spoof. It's re- it's quite funny, but it's uh, it's like a kind of spoof, strange but true style, or like you know Ripley's right. Believe It or Not kind of show. And Tom Baker is Lionel Nimrod, right, okay. and he's just sort of surrounded by a cast like Rebecca Front and Shirley. I, f- I feel and... like you're awakening some sort of vague memory there. <laughs> I think you could still get it online somewhere if you I'll, if you're I'll, intrigued. I'll, I'll give it a look. A company called Big Finish are planning two talking books for new adventures called Oh No It Isn't and Beyond the Sun. Now these were... F- it'll never work it'll out. It'll never work yeah. out. <laughs> Colin and Nicola recorded a series of talking books called Out of the Darkness for the BBC. So there's there's a lot of... There's a big audio movement over 1998. Mm. Like when we said before the Professor ones had been announced but it's and they would try to get that Tom Baker one. So... Clearly, like, all roads are leading to Big Finish at this point. But it's weird that the BBC is still very much like, we're doing talking books, because talking books sell. And the fans are going, do a fucking audio drama. BBV will do an audio drama. And then... <laughs> it, and that's ultimately, you know, where we end up. Yeah. Because talking books bore me shitless. That's only that's only me personally, but I just can't, I can't pay attention to them. Some other exciting news. There was the BBC Choice Doctor Who night was announced. And... Andrew Cartmel reports that Ian Briggs has given up writing to become a masseuse. <laughs> it's, it's just... I mean, I hope that's true. Imagine... I hope that's true. Imagine getting a... It's like a really niche myth makers where you go and have a sports massage and uh, he tells you about the making of Dragonfire. <laughs> I'm sold. Videos at the time. Horror of Fangrock. The aforementioned Lust in Space. Katie Manning's Mythmakers, Planet of Fire, The Ark, and the Ice Warriors box set that had Underwater Menace 3 and stuff like that. Yeah. I think... I remember it well. It's quite an exciting... It's almost the arse end of the video release range. And they've done all the the bangers. So... (laughs) Yeah. But what you get is, at this point, the interesting kind of second-tier stories. So things like The Ark... 
and Planet of Fire and Fang Rock. I don't think I'd ever really seen until they came out on video. It's quite interesting to kind of experience them because they're all very, for me, I think they're great stories, they're enjoyable, but they're, mm -hmm. because they're not the Pyramids of Mars or Dalek's Invasion of Earth, they were kind of kept till later in the schedule. Yeah, definitely. Bookwise, we've got The Sixth Doctor, Frobisher and Glitz in Mission Impractical, which I've never read, but I want to read. Yeah, that sounds great. We get The Fifth Doctor, Zeta Major, Second Doctor, Dreams of Empire, Fourth Doctor, Last Man Running, Seventh Doctor, Matrix, and then we get The Infinity Doctors. The other side of that, the Eighth Doctor has Seeing Eye, the Placebo Effect, Vanderkin's Children, the Scarlet Empress, the Janus Connection, and Bell Tempest. I vaguely remember the Scarlet Empress, but that's about it, really. So we're going to go into Wormwood now, but before we do, themed drinks. Yes, there's a bit of a Wild West vibe mm -hmm. um, to Wormwood, so I've got a can of Lone Rider. Nice. By the uh, the Playbrew Company. So, yeah, it's quite, it's not too bad. I didn't do too well here, but uh, I'm reaching again. So, I've got Arbor, <laughs> which is an American pale ale because Nick Briggs is a pale imitation of the Doctor compared to uh, Paul McGann. So, that's that's where I've gone with it. As Faye and Izzy struggle with the Doctor's new identity, the TARDIS is forced to make an emergency landing in an 1880s western town where they meet Abraham White, but they soon discover the town is on the moon and full of the greatest achievements of mankind and Abraham is the creator of the threshold. When Faye learns they've been used as a relay unit and spy, they go after Abraham who swiftly turns into the pariah. Abraham explains that he was once a travelling salesman who found the dying pariah fallen to earth. They made a deal to share his body for their own gains. Together, they guided humanity's history and created the threshold. Abraham then uses a device called the Ziggurat and destroys all of space. Anybody outside of a planet's atmosphere is now dead and space travel is impossible. Abraham transmits an advert to the universe telling them what has happened to space, but the threshold can offer a solution of interplanetary travel via their gateways at a substantial fee. Izzy, who had previously been captured by a threshold member called Gracie arrives, and Gracie reveals herself to be the eighth doctor disguised by a personal chameleon circuit, with the new doctor being Shade in disguise. The pariah and Shade immediately do battle while the doctor, Izzy and Faye escape through a porthole to the TARDIS. The Doctor tells Faye he knew they were being used to spy on them, with the ruse of the regeneration being used to make the Doctor seem vulnerable. The Doctor gives Izzy Ace's baseball bat and tells her to smash the Iron Shield, while the Doctor and Faye return to the battlefield where the Pariah has won, crushing Shade's head and taking the TARDIS. As the Pariah reveals her plan to destroy all planets too, she also drains all of the threshold of their energy. Abraham, who's not keen on the scheme, splits from her as it will kill them both. With the Iron Shield destroyed, Wormwood will collapse. The dying pariah chases the Doctor, but Shade and Faye appear merged together and kills the pariah. The Doctor, Izzy and the newly formed Fade leave in the TARDIS, before Fade goes off into the universe for their own adventures. Before we go into Wormwood completely, Let's talk about Nick Briggs for a second. Because you're not his biggest fan. <laughs> Look, the first time I suggested this to you, when you were like, oh, you know, looking for people to come on and, you know, do stuff, was because, I can't remember what episode it was, it was quite a recent one, where you said, I'm not here to slag off Nick Briggs, that's <laughs> on the time matches job. I, I don't have any issues with Nick Briggs, I, ju I just feel like he's everywhere, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he's just omnipresent within sort of Doctor Who 
fandom and spin-off media and Doctor Who itself. Yeah. And I think when somebody becomes, you know, because he's essentially he's a monster actor in the TV show. He does the voice for the Cybermen, the Ice Warriors, the, the Daleks, you know, yada, yada, yada. But when somebody's so omnipresent and you know that person, it does kind of remove the mystique. Right. Slightly. Do you not? Do you not feel like I don't know? I I just think like I like Nick Briggs. I'm in awe that someone has managed to make a career out of being a Doctor Who fan, and he's not the only one. It's, but he's it's, yeah, it is impressive. I, yeah. He is kind of the A list of that, if if that makes makes sense. Yeah, I completely understand why Big Finish do what they do in terms of bringing back or like now they are not everybody. The, yeah, <laughs> because now they are not the main source of Doctor Who. The TV series came back. Just doing a good Doctor Who story isn't enough. They need to have a hook. Mm-hmm. I think they they release too much, but then I don't have to buy it. So who <laughs> who, well, who yes. cares? And you know, I feel like he's written so much Doctor Who that his best days are behind him in terms of writing those stories. I mean, Ben and I have talked about this in the podcast. It's just like even the best writers in the world, you know have not written nearly as much as Nick Briggs. Yeah. You know, has written for Doctor Who. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think Ravagers is a kind of case in point. Is that we've got Chris Freckerson back as Doctor Who. It's like, oh, great. All three episodes are written by Nicholas Briggs, and it's a three-part story. Oh, okay. Yeah. But from the kind of early days of the 90s, of his involvement in BBV and stuff like that, he was just, he's weirdly someone that's always been present in my life, you know? It's like, <laughs> sure. I grew up watching Nick Briggs in a, like, I, I mean, I'm sure this isn't healthy, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like, he's just been a presence in my life for as long as I can remember. And like, because I'm a huge Myth Makers fan, you know, yeah. the good, the bad, and the ugly of the, the range, and the, I'm the spin off guy. I, I, I'm too obsessed yeah. with Doctor Who spin-offs Every, of the 90s. Everybody knows this. I just can't think of a time like Nick Briggs and Doctor Who come hand in hand for me. It's really strange. Maybe I'm his biggest yeah, fan. Maybe you are. He is the the kind of quintessential success story, yeah. isn't he? Really, you know, when it comes to Doctor Who fandom. And and you know, and good for him. And you know, don't get me wrong, like I say, I I, I don't have anything I just I do think it's just quite funny sometimes to just poke fun yeah oh yeah completely (laughs) at that you know nothing is because he does seem to take himself quite seriously i feel like he jumps Um, between being self-deprecating and taking himself far too seriously i feel like there's a contradiction mm. like sometimes it's like oh this is stupid why does anybody want to talk about me and then other times it's yeah he had that meltdown on facebook recently yeah um where what a what was it what a bloody minded or like nasty interview uh nasty review and basically the guy just said it's not that good. But but to be fair to him, he, he did come back a day later and went, I was tired and I just said something I shouldn't have done. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's social media all over in it. What's interesting is Nick Briggs had a certain career trajectory and he was writing, he wrote for some soaps and things like that. And he was acting in other things as well, like bit mm-hmm. parts here and there. The moment he was in charge of Big Finish, that's his job and his writing or acting in anything else just went i guess it's that thing of do you want to be the kind of king of a tiny little cottage industry or do you want to slum it out there with the rest of because he was directing and acting in theater and stuff i've got some mates actors who used to work with him all the time in theater productions and stuff like that and it's like all of a sudden he's got a regular income he doesn't have to live the actor's life which is you know can be really tough 
Yeah, yeah. Jumping from production to production. He really hated writing television, apparently, when he did that. So he's just made his own little uh, his own little kingdom that I think he's happy to be. Yeah, and I think he is. And I mean, you know, at the end of the day, he loves Doctor Who, you know, as do we all, you know. And um, and he's managed to make a, a, a career out of that. And don't get me wrong, he has written some very enjoyable Doctor Who audios yeah. a, a while ago now. And they are all very evocative of a certain time... He's a, he's like the kind of audio Mark Gatiss. Yeah. You know, it's that kind of thing of like, you kind of root for him because he's a fan and, and all that kind of thing. But also he is just writing a very particular style of Doctor Who regardless of the Doctor that is taking part in that script. It's basically the Doctor Who he remembers as a kid. Yeah. So we're going to dive into uh, Wormwood. Let's not beat around the bush. Cut to the chase. Let's talk about Nick Briggs as the Doctor. Now, because it's not Nick Briggs as the Doctor, is it? No, it's it's a likeness of Nick Briggs uh, as the Doctor. I mean... And he's not even technically the Doctor. No, and as one of the characters says, it's like the Doctor died and we're stuck with his understudy. Which I thought was a brilliant <laughs> yeah. line. Well, I thought my, what might be fun, I have the uh, timelines page from the month after the final chapter fucking brilliant so i thought there's some fun sort of letters here one of which is um i don't know how much this will mean to to some listeners but to me and ben verth if he's listening my my co-host uh blimey jack doherty is the doctor (laughs) just have a touch of the jack doherty is about this how could you possibly consider replacing mr mcgann after only two years of doctorliness it's the shortest reign any actor has had in a role. I mean, to be fair, Colin Baker didn't have a very long role. It was no, just those 18 months in the middle of it where, like, he was, you know, he was the Doctor, but he wasn't the Doctor. Bring back Paul McGann, I say. The new Doctor seems extremely annoying. I could murder a nice cup of tea. Ugh, horrible, I say. Please do something about this. The new Doctor just isn't right. Wow. What on earth have you done with the comic strip? Gary Gillett was certainly right in his editorial when he said that I wouldn't believe it, and I don't. What possessed you to regenerate the Doctor <laughs> with no TV or film model to base him on? They based him on Nick Briggs, mate. <laughs> I feel, rightly or wrongly, that without an actor having portrayed your new Doctor in any production, he will lack the core and substance that even the brief screen life of the Eighth Doctor had, and your comic strip will end up falling flat on its face. Now... I can understand perfectly your desire to link, de-link yourself from the continuity of the new adventures, as they were. To put it bluntly, rubbish. <laughs> but <laughs> people may have gotten upset with you for killing Ace and all that, but I didn't mind. But I can only think of one reason why you have done this. The big wigs at Marvel have told you that your magazine has maybe a couple of years life left in it. Wow. You want to get through to the end of the Doctor's regenerative cycle so you can give him a big send-off in comic strip form in the year 2000 or thereabouts. This is what I love about Doctor Who fandom. It's that it's that kind of eight Doctor quote of, you know, seeing patterns yeah. and things that aren't there. It's the assumption. You know? <laughs> and people like, I mean, we're all kind of guilty of it to a certain extent of like, clearly what's going on at the BBC right now is this, this, yeah. this and this. And like, we've got a thread with Jack and Richie where we talk about this shit all the time. And we're all going, I think they're going to do this. They're clearly doing that. I bet they did that because of that. And we, we, we are 100% seeing patterns that probably aren't there. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, think, I think fans are guilty of it all over the internet. Uh, this guy continues, But even if this is the case, I feel that the regeneration is a misguided venture. There are, however, two ways in which you can get around the problems you have now caused with comic strip canonicity. Either 
You clearly established that the Marvel Adventures of the Eighth Doctor are set far, far in the future after the BBC once have ended. So the BBC novels, mm. I presume he, he means. Um, or you make it so that his regeneration is all a dream and the Doctor is still in the Matrix halfway <laughs> through the final chapter. This might be a tad Dallas-esque, but I will, I feel, save the strip from becoming less and less part of established Doctor Who. There. That's my piece set. And they must have been cackling to themselves when they got all these these angry yeah. letters. There's quite a funny response from DWM, which says, let's get this straight, Paul. There are absolutely, unequivocally, no plans whatsoever for Doctor Who to be folded in the next couple of years. The magazine is doing very nicely, thank you. Secondly, those still vexed by matters of canon should take a peek at the next issue box over the page. And third, no, it wasn't all the dream. <laughs> Brilliant. Because people people did go nuts. They lost their shit. For this, I remember. Yeah. And I remember it happening, and we said this earlier, like, I thought it was for real. And it kind of it mm. kind of makes sense in, the, in a kind of fan-owned thing. Because you've got Nick Briggs as the doctor. It may not be a hugely known thing at this time, but to some people, he was kind of... Not a legit doctor, but he'd done the the audio visuals where he played the doctor for mm-hmm. like three or four seasons, and those are kind of well thought of fan plays. And I I would say, in many ways, he's probably the definitive fan doctor in that he can act like he yeah he's absolutely not doctor material a hundred percent like, but in terms of fan productions, the fan audios of that time, and to be honest, beyond. I feel like everybody like he he made the best go of it, yeah. and he does pick it up again in a couple of BBV audios. So he has a slight a slight more weight than any other fan doctor, but it's still casting a Doctor Who fan as the Doctor, even if they're not in the role uh, and not in a David Tennant way. Yes, that's true. But I mean, I think also I think it's quite looking back on it now. I'm sort of reading it in twenty twenty one. There is something certainly the first part where it is a bit like because obviously the, the whole twist is that you know the doctor is alive and well and working behind the scenes at threshold and shade is currently pretending to be the doctor um and there is certain affectations and certain you know things that that shade does or the nicholas briggs doctor does that makes you think you know looking back on it and reading it now knowing what comes later it's like yeah that's definitely somebody playing the role yeah. of the doctor as they see it's it. it's over the top in in a doctor yeah. before. it's almost written like the doctor is in fan films and stuff like that where they make it yeah it's the sort of character that kind of holds their lapels and goes indubitably young man it always reminds <laughs> yeah. me of 90s doctor who conventions there'd always be some guy in his like 30s or 40s or probably 20s i don't know but um and he you, you know the sort of guy he's not dressed in cosplay but he's dressed as what he thinks his doctor would would wear so he's probably got like a tom baker hat and then like velvet jacket and stuff like that and i remember seeing a guy dressed like this at a convention and he left and there was a security or a concierge on the front and he went thank you so much my dear chap and shaked it shook his hand and that's just Doctor Who fans idea of like what they think the Doctor yeah. behaves like in and that's you see that channeled in fan films and it's also channeled here of like it's too doctorish like mm-hmm. it's forcing eccentricity where they're actually it can only come naturally if that makes sense I think that's what Chris Freckleston did so brilliantly 
was that he completely just and well, I suppose and Russell T Davis is the writer, but they just completely punctuate like just like punctured that whole thing. Yeah, it's just like he's just this guy that turns up and helps out, and you know he he's better than everybody else, but he kind of still wants to be your mate. Yeah, and when he does want to, he'll give you a dressing down, but it's not this kind of like weird, you know affectation of like oh hello yeah i'm the doctor <laughs> you know he's not turning to billy piper and like, my dear girl will you give me a cup of tea well it's you know i think rusty davis said he was like you've got an alien like the, this vastly intelligent alien who travels in time and space who's come to earth and you want to make him eccentric on top of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah god that yeah that's a really good he's point. gonna be yeah. weird or she's gonna be weird enough as it is because they're a fucking alien. <laughs> like, yeah. That's it. Yeah. You don't need to add some faux... You don't need to add Adam Adamant on top of that, essentially. Yeah. But you get but you get bits of that here, that kind of, like, really over-the-top doctor. And it's something, I guess, the next Doctor does as well. Yeah. When, when we get to that in sort of 2008, it, it's, like, too doctorish. It's, like, too over-the-top. It's, it's that bit where he tells Izzy to go and make a cup of tea. Yeah. And you know stuff like that, and it's all just this kind of like, this is this isn't the doctor. This is somebody playing the doctor. Yeah. And when you when you know how the story pans out, you can then go back and, and read it and see all that stuff in there. I think I could be misremembering here. I was hoping to revisit some audio visuals before this, but I didn't have the time. I think and I've never listened to them all, but I've dipped in that his doctor is obsessed with tea in in the audio visuals. Right. Okay. I could be wrong, and someone will tweet me after this and go no he wasn't obsessed with tea but i just i there's something in the back of my mind that says that was his like quirk because it was the 80s and you know every doctor needed a quirk john nathan turner style yeah and then also like i mean you get that in a tv movie don't you there's just this kind of like you know sylvester mccoy sit down with a cup of tea because he's british because he's british yeah, yeah. then that that's, pure, that's, that's it. what it is like what see the tea or otherwise you'd have to have fish and chips yeah but I think um, I, I think it's convincing enough yeah. for you to think that because it's what four episodes, well four parts before you t- it turns out four you know, that, that you th- what's happening. Yeah, four months that people yeah. go, oh, this is this is a new Doctor, and also mm-hmm. that letters page gave a weird thing because you've still got the book, so it's not like the Eighth Doctor doesn't exist in other mediums. Like, you've regenerated it. But yeah. then that's Doctor Who fans being obsessed with canon, especially 90s Doctor Who. And then wait, wait two years, and then, you know, you've got him back. Yeah. <laughs> Come back properly, well, as, as properly as you can. Yeah. Um, but I think they do enough to convince and sell that this is a new Doctor. Even mm-hmm. And also, because this Doctor had made a cameo in an older comic strip. Yeah. Is, Have you read Party Animals? I've not, no. So I went back and reread it after I've read all of these just to kind of familiarise myself with it. And basically it's like the doctor turns up at some party for what looks like a Zal. <laughs> so it's like basically it's like one of, you know, it's his birthday party and he's invited like loads of sort of Doctor Who baddies and like Worf from Star Trek Next Generation <laughs> is there. Uh, is it Death's Heads? Mm. The uh, Rob and Dave were talking about recently yes. on the Doctor Who show. He's there. There's like loads of just like other Marvel characters alongside the Doctor Who baddies. And also in amongst this party, there's Nick Briggs's Doctor. Brilliant. Who basically they're they're just kind of chatting. 
uh, and he's a he's supposed to be a future incarnation of the doctor and he's got a companion and, and all this kind of thing and basically it's like it's that thing of i think i can't remember what year it would have been now but i think it was kind of maybe just towards the end of the series maybe just after the end of the series where like you were still in that period where you could just be like yeah here's a future doctor we're never ever going to address this again yeah. it's just a fun story idea to do that this character throws this birthday party the doctor turns up but sometimes you know his future self turns up or like at the punchline is the fourth doctor turns up at the end right i said oh sorry did i miss the party so it's like this idea of just you know the doctor is a time traveler and can exist in you know and just because you invite the doctor doesn't necessarily mean you get the doctor that you've invited yeah river song yeah <laughs> exactly so it's like a fun it's just a fun kind of one-shot comic strip and then yeah so they they take him as as the doctor and so it kind of i guess you know if you've been reading doctor as we talked about in the final chapter and sort of tying in all these all these existing elements i suppose yeah you you get that from from this you you've you know you've got party animals where this guy says he's a future doctor here's the future doctor i, I also love the idea that in this brief story somehow shade found a bit of time just to pop to that party for a bit and then uh, and then yeah <laughs> <laughs> comes back we didn't really talk about the art on the last one so we'll jump into the story in a minute mm. but so it's martin Geraghty and robin smith who kind of did the art on this and the last one and i think they're so good at creating these Doctor Who images of huge alien worlds of like Gallifrey to this western town on the moon um, full of Earth's greatest achievements. And there's a brilliant frame in one of the, the parts of this where Abraham, the baddie, is doing a TV advert to the whole of the universe and you just see him do it with like a dead nun's face on the floor. Yeah. Every image in these two comics I think are perfectly composed and I think they... They don't waste a single like page at all. No. Going through the the kind of arc as you have, d does it feel like a consistent visual style throughout them all? And yeah, definitely. That, like that's it. Yeah, I mean Martin Garrity and and Robin Smith. I believe they do most of the strips, yeah. with a few kind of breaks where they do like you get a one shot by somebody else yeah. doing the artwork and stuff like that. But yeah, it does feel like a consistent visual style. It feels like that kind of thing, like say Doctor Who was on TV at that point, you would have Alan Barnes as the showrunner and you would have somebody as a sort of cinematographer or, you know, somebody keeping the sort of visual style consistent. Yeah, you know. And it's this one's written by Scott Gray and it feels like Scott Gray and Alan Barnes kind of tag team the, the Eighth Doctor stories. Well, so Scott Gray wrote Ground Zero, which is the of first course, time we yeah. meet the Threshold. So obviously he's bringing this story arc sort of full circle and sort of bringing it to an end. Um, so obviously he's kind of conceived of these bad guys and gives them their kind of origin story, but also their kind of uh, climax. And I think they're, they're such a compelling villain. They are. Like this idea of like these kind of management essentially intergalactic management consultants yeah, but he, he said they were driven by he said the best doctor who baddies are always like say the daleks are based on xenophobia or something like that they said it's all human traits and he was like i want to mm. base them on greed that's what they are yeah so they're not they're not evil they're just like how do we get to the top of the tree how do we get yeah, the most I... for what for ourselves well because that's the whole thing with ground zero is that they've been hired to help 
these kind of like sort of psychic sort of mites essentially um sort of like break through dimensions into the real world and essentially what they do is they kind of go well actually would it be more beneficial for us to just get the doctor to just fucking wipe them out you know let's let's do that and then obviously as a result of that ace ace is killed um so yeah they're just in it for themselves and that's quite a rare thing in doctor who baddies i think there's always this kind of world domination thing and this is literally just like like i love i fucking love in this the idea that they detonate the solar system <laughs> they destroy the know? whole of space like, essentially they ho- destroy the whole of space thing pretty dangerous to go into space <laughs> you want to you want to give us some money for this uh, new transport system that'll allow you to uh travel from planet to planet it's brilliant that's such a great idea it's such a great such motive. a great sci-fi idea it's one of those things yeah. of like davros wants to destroy the whole of reality in uh, the stolen earth and stuff like that and you think yeah why and if someone goes yeah um oh well uh they're going to destroy the whole of outer space and i thought what a ridiculous idea and then they say why and you're like that's such a fucking good idea well done yeah. guys you've actually yeah. given like motive to like the sort of stupid plots that villains come mm-hmm. up with all the time. Yeah, it's bloody brilliant. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic. Like, and Abraham's, as you said previously, like his whole sort of address to the universe. You know, it's incredible. We we have this character Abraham White, and I think he's a fantastic villain. Abraham is basically a salesman. He's, he's a he's a he's a hustler. He was out selling Gideon's Bibles in the Wild West. Yeah. He links with the Pariah, which was the for, the predecessor to Shade. Again, we're, we're reaching back to the eighties comics. We're going far back, and they form this symbiotic relationship, essentially a bit like Venom in the the Marvel mm, comics, yeah. where there's this creature that lives inside. They inhabit the same body. They just strike up a deal in like quite a, you know, it's 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 a good relationship. Like I almost wanted more of them. I would happily do like six or seven comic strips with them. In. Yeah, it is kind of a shame, isn't it? When when that's all introduced and you and you've only got like five parts left before the whole thing yeah. is done and dusted and over and done with. Um, it'd be good to kind of have more of them because yeah, there's such a compelling partnership. The pariah creature itself just looks really cool and if you look at the early sketches like they're determined to make a feminine which and it's kind of sounds like a weird thing but like no this is this is a, a female character and there's this brilliant shot where she picks up the tardis and it's just like yeah. oh i wasn't expecting a monster to be able to do that and i know it's so kind of basic but you don't see that and she kind of just carries it under her yeah. arm or something <laughs> doesn't she yeah it's great it's such a great image and also that kind of end of is it end of part four or five cliffhanger where she just shatters shades head yes fucking hell yeah and you're like like that's amazing yeah. you know especially like it's because when we meet shade in the 80s shade seen as like this all-powerful creature and actually what you've got here is kind of the earlier version of of shade just kind of destroying her and but the image wise it's fucking great I also thought that Abraham and uh, Pariah kind of manipulating human history was very silence-like. I thought that as well, yeah. 
and and the inclusion of the moon yeah and, and all that kind of stuff yeah and even Faye is has obviously been used there's something put in Faye's head to kind of recall what was going on on Gallifrey that even leads back to the silence where obviously they have a clone Amy but essentially she's mm-hmm. she's kind of keeping them informed of what the doctor's up to at the same time yeah. keeping other Amy busy so I just as always there's lots of ideas that have been reused whether yeah because they probably sat in Stephen Moffat's head for 20 years and he went thinks they're his own yeah (laughs) I do this sometimes where I'm like oh I'd love to see this in Doctor Who and then Jack or somebody I think maybe even Ben did it on our podcast where I was like I'd love to see this and someone goes oh well that was a plot in the books and it's just been sat in my head for years but I just can't remember (laughs) I can completely understand Stephen Moffat thinking he was developing something completely original yeah 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 yeah. well there's that great Seinfeld episode where Elaine submits a cartoon to the New Yorker I think she's come up with this amazing idea and it turns out that she just read it (laughs) yeah of course of course yeah (laughs) we get this amazing world on the moon where they've collected sort of all of humanity's greatest achievements in this western town and again you're working with these images that they could have only done in comics at, the, at that point. Yeah. And I think they're very good at kind of going, they're writing for the medium, which I think is yeah. probably the, the greatest asset that these kind of 90s comics have, because it is Doctor Who as you would want to see it if it was a big budget film, but mm-hmm. with all the fan wank that we expect, yeah. but with solid, solid storytelling <laughs> within it. Well, I love I love that whole bit where Abraham takes the Doctor in his like little hover car, and the Doctor's like, well, it's not the Doctor, but the but Shade yeah. the Shade Doctor is like, what the hell have you done here? It's like Las Vegas. Yeah, because I I went to Las Vegas once, and it was just insane. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's like you've got the Eiffel Tower, the Statue of Liberty. You know, the fucking pyramids. You fly into yeah. this fucking desert. I've been there once myself yeah. and it's like, you fly in and you're just in this completely man-made kind of... There wasn't a little yeah. village that t- that grew over hundreds of years. It's just yeah. like this... It's just all artificial. And with... It's bizarre. With, yeah, with these random bits of kind of iconography from around the world. I, I completely empathise with the alien nature of that. <laughs> Back to the threshold a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Scott Gray wasn't going to give them an ending originally. He said, I wanted them to be eternally mysterious um, with their origins never revealed, but it just felt like... He was a bit miffed, he said, with having to keep Faye on. He had to find new things to do, and then he just thought, oh, actually, I can tie up both Faye in with Shade, and I can also kind of reveal that it is the, the threshold they remind me a little bit of what i thought the cavorians and in the spyfall thing were and we don't we don't know whether that's just a plot point left hanging because chibnall forgot or got distracted or whether that's gonna <laughs> that's gonna play into something else in the future but that's the kind of energy i got from it of like oh it's the cavorians again mm. like, or beforehand yeah i mean but also the silence you yeah. know they are Essentially, they're there sort of keeping civilization sort of ticking yeah. along in their image. But yeah, I mean, it's such a great, it's such a simple design, but such a great design. Yeah. You know, and this idea that they're the offspring of Abraham and Pariah, um, and th- th- this great image of like, she sort of takes her essence, which he's bonded with himself. 
and then, and then we kind of multiply. And those are all the shade. They're all shade heads, yeah. essentially, which is really yeah. what the intention was of the art. That you've been yeah. looking at the threshold for years, and actually yeah. they're made of something you already you already know. It's yeah. It's just it's so good. I mean, it must have been so rewarding because obviously I only came to Stock Two Comics in kind of ninety six, sort of late ninety six. Um, but it must have been so rewarding. Like, if you'd been reading Dot Two magazine, Dot Two comics since, like, was it the Tides of Time? Is that the first Shade one? Stop, Maybe earlier. Stop I, don't know. I want to say no. It's not as Shade and Stop Retorio. Okay, I think that's it. But it's in the Tides of Time book. The yeah, that's yeah, sure. But yeah, that must be like such a rewarding thing to kind of see all of that pay off. I, I do wonder whether it was planned to pay off or whether they've just gone, because there seems to be this thing of like in the 90s they're not quite sure what to do with the comic strip at first the 80s is such a successful run late 80s you get the whole mccoy thing where it's not quite connected to the tv series but it is and they never they don't do mel seventh doctor talks about um perry and stuff like that so i, I think once they were getting things going in terms of the show's over and they they obviously introduced the threshold they kill ace and stuff like that they suddenly go Actually, we can call back to our heyday. And something they said about Gallifrey in the previous one as well, they were like, we're reclaiming Gallifrey as our comic strip Gallifrey like it used to be, um, which is why you get bearded Rassilon like he was in yeah. the 80s comics. It's almost like they've had their peak, their decline, where they don't quite know what to do. And then they go, right, we're back on it, and we're going to pull from our past. I think also it's that freedom as well. It's like, there's no show. So you can just strike out and make your own identity as kind of like this is the continuing story of Doctor Who in comics yeah and it's been running as long as the TV series had at that point you know like it's, it's yeah, the best part true. of 30 yeah. years so they've realised they've got their own mythos and they don't need to they don't need to be Doctor Who light as the comic strip often is now where it's like we're running alongside the TV series we can tell a, a ripping yarn or whatever but we can't yeah. really do anything kind of too wild yeah, we can't push the characters in any kind of interesting direction. Where here you can. You can do a fake regeneration. You can have the Doctor in disguise as an agent of the Threshold. And you know, and then what they do with Izzy, but I mean, this is, that's a whole separate discussion, but uh, which you guys covered when you talked about uh, the floods and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, you can just do whatever the hell you like because you've created your own characters. You can play with those characters. and it's. Let's talk about Izzy again. Because she doesn't get a lot to do here either. I know she's a great companion, but yeah. this is very much Faye's story, quite rightly. And yeah. the last, yeah. as you say, she get Faye gets a lot. Uh, Faye gets a lot to do in the last one as well. So I I know that Izzy is great, but it does feel like they don't quite know what to do with her. Hmm. She gets some good stuff in the first part where she's kind of trying to get used to regeneration and all that kind of thing. But then, yeah, she's kind of... They get whisked away by Abraham to the sort of threshold headquarters. And she's, like, investigating. Um, and then the doctor turns up to kind of explain to her what's happening. She doesn't get to find these things out for herself. We seem to see this all the time. Is two companions too much for the doctor three months? Like, <laughs> like it's, it's very rare. I think they probably handle it the best in the 60s and maybe early Tom Baker when Harry's about. Yeah. It just seems that people have real trouble dealing with a larger TARDIS crew. Which is strange, because the whole, you know, the default setting of Doctor Who is the Doctor and their, compa and their companions turn up on a planet, they get split up. 
each person has different things to do. It all combines into like a big climax, and then you know that's the end of the story. But yeah, you you're right. I mean, I think this. I think Wormwood obviously has the problem. Well, it's not a problem, but it it has the whole thing of like it's a fake regeneration. So you've got a new Doctor, you've got the old Doctor who's working in the background, you've got this kind of culmination of you know a, a couple of years worth of comic strips, and you've also got Faye as well. Um, so that yeah, inevitably somebody's going to get sidelined, mm. and sadly it's kind of it's Izzy, but she gets better stuff. Yeah, you know, as as the, these comic strips continue. A hundred percent. It's an issue that I mean, I've been rewatching the Jodie Whittaker era along with you guys covering it on the podcast, and the writers just don't know what to do with that many people. They're either all together, yeah. so they're basically just getting a line each, or someone's separated off and goes and has an adventure while the others are just kind of tagging along <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah. And it's 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 frustrating to have like a group of people that at first glance are quite interesting characters, but they're just not being kind mm-hmm. of looked into. And I felt a little of that frustration here. I was like, I know Izzy's great. I remember Izzy being great, but this is not her finest hour. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Obviously, the Doctor comes back and you get that fantastic reveal of... Um, the eighth doctor looking like the most eighth doctor version of the eighth doctor you could possibly <laughs> yeah. draw it looks more like paul mcgann than paul mcgann does um <laughs> do you think it's did do you think they dropped that reveal at the right point sort of four months in did you think they could have strung it out for a bit longer no i think it comes at the right story point i think um because you get that kind of interesting thing where they both have the threshold ring and is he's like well, i'm gonna find the doctor and Faye's like, I'm not interested in the Doctor. I want to fucking speak to Abraham. So that's why she ends up with the Doctor. And obviously Izzy finds the Doctor by arriving in the threshold and being really confused yeah. as to why they've brought her there. So I think, you know, and it, it just plays out so beautifully yeah. to that kind of final reveal of the Eighth Doctor is alive and well and basically there to bring down the threshold. It's Yeah, it's, I think it comes at the right time, definitely. Yeah. And it's 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 great when he returns. But then again, the finale is very much about Shade and Pariah fighting each other. And Shade gets their ass kicked, basically, for a lot of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's quite savage, savage to watch. Then Shade and Faye become Fade. Yeah. And I think that's a, like a... It's a bit out of the blue, I thought. Even though I was expecting it, I was like, that's an interesting thing to do with a character that hasn't been around that long. Yeah, and it kind of happens off well off page yeah i was gonna say off screen but that doesn't quite work um because yeah it's basically just like the next time so fit like shade got his skull shattered phase kind of leaning over him neck the doctor and izzy run off in the tardis and next thing you know oh hello i've uh bonded with shade yeah it's all okay <laughs> So, oh, okay. So yeah, it's, it's it's it is it does come out of left field. I think it's an interesting choice. It's this kind of I guess it's kind of in keeping with that idea of like you get this thing nowadays in like kind of modern filmmaking and and television is that you don't cast an actor to just spend their whole time in prosthetics or in costume mm. covering their face. Yeah. So it feels like that kind of next stage. It's just like, okay, well, Shade still exists, but now they have, you know, a sort of relatable human face. The regeneration, the false regeneration, the reveal. This is something that I kind of picked up. It's obviously only done as like a big shock surprise for the audience. Because actually, if you think about it, Shade could have just taken on the form of the Eighth Doctor. 
so it's it's a narrative yeah. point rather yeah. than like it's like a how do we get people reading the comic strip well which is, which is fair well it isn't it isn't i mean i think you're right i think yeah you could have done a version of that story where just shade pretends to be the doctor but the whole the doctor's justification is that i needed the threshold to think i was weak yeah because i've just regenerated so they're distracted by that and i can carry on doing what i'm doing i so it kind of works it's a big ruse that he he uses to kind of get his revenge on the threshold but then also i think what's really interesting about it is that when the pariah just kills the whole of the threshold the doctor's kind of just repulsed like he's like well, no i didn't want this it's like yeah they killed ace and he gives Izzy Ace's baseball bat, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's very much a culmination of that story. And the Doctor is kind of disgusted by, you know, what his revenge has wrought, I guess. is kind of. But the Seventh thing. Doctor would have been there rubbing his hands going... Yeah, well, yeah. What, the, the Seventh Doctor is this great manipulator, which is borne out a little bit in some of the TV stories, but mainly the new adventures. He doesn't get his hands dirty. He just manipulates everybody else into destroying mm-hmm. um, each other essentially yeah yeah but I think it's a it's a sign that they've got a good handle on what McGann's doctor is which is like he is full mm-hmm. of life and he is more you see you get that in the hour of the TV movie that he's in it that he is he's got a more yeah. lust for life than a dreary old... and he's more of an, an adventurer and he's kind of got no time for these kind of games mm. and he's only kind of doing it because there's a mystery to solve. I think that that I mean it's not implicit it's not explicit in the work, but I I took from that this certainly this time around, it's just like he finds this box of Rasslon and Fire and Brimstone and he's just like, How the hell did this get here? I'm gonna find out. It's all about solving a mystery. It's not about this being this arch manipulator. Yeah. Um but sometimes you have to become the arch manipulator to get your, your sort of final goal. And I actually think there's a point in the big finish range of McGann Audios where he does become a bit more of that, and it's almost like it's reverting to that default setting, um, mm. especially as you get into the Time War stuff of him not wanting to be there, but also realising he's got certain battles to fight and the, the yeah. Dark Eye stuff and stuff like that. But I think it also plays back to when Stephen Moffat said I mean this is apparently a cover line but he said I couldn't imagine the 8th Doctor fighting the Time War because he's so kind of he has got that lust for life and he's so sort of positive although again could be Doctor Who fans making shit up apparently that was just because the BBC yeah. said it's the 50th anniversary who the fuck is Paul McGann essentially yeah <laughs> get John Hurt yeah get John Hurt yeah. him um, so is there anything else you want to say about Wormwood. I loved revisiting this era of Doctor Who comics. It kind of ignited a little fire of kind of my sort of twelve-year-old self, you know, that I didn't think I didn't think was still there <laughs> after <laughs> after sort of decades of kind of jadedness with sort of Doctor Who and Doctor Who fandom. I just yeah, I just I really enjoyed revisiting these um, and and this whole era of Doctor Who. It is. I mean, we're of the same age, so it's no surprise that, yeah. that, that we have similar experiences <laughs> and a similar fondness for it. But there's a bit of information that I did find out while digging about, and that the use of a false ninth Doctor, which I'd not heard before, was a deliberate test by the team to see if they could regenerate the Doctor in the comic strip. I Yeah, so I remember when 
I think it's the part for a cliffhanger went out in Doctor Who magazine. My mate was like, oh, they've only done that because they had all these complaints. Yeah. And uh, I was no, like, nah, no, I yeah, think it was all no. part. And, and you, you look yeah. at it now, it's definitely it's, not it's that. Definitely. But yeah, they, they definitely were testing the waters, yeah. I think, as well. Because you, I think if you were going to regenerate the Doctor, the Nick Briggs gag works for people who are in on it. But actually, yeah. like you would do something more exciting than Nick Briggs. Mm-hmm. Also, we all know yeah. the Doctor must have hair. <laughs> there was almost another Ninth Doctor in a comic strip. I don't know whether you're aware of this. Okay. Do you remember the Radio Times comic strips with the Eighth Doctor? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. There was a version of that that I think Radio Times were planning like a sci-fi magazine spin-off, and it never happened. But they were going to do a Doctor Who comic strip in it with a Ninth Doctor, and it was the same people behind it and they just did one strip as like an example and it's somewhere on the oh, internet i have yeah. seen this yeah is the cyberman thing? i don't know whether there's cyberman in it probably they probably are they were all over those those things but it is a ninth doctor that we we just never met because that magazine yeah never came to fruition yeah i think i i think i have read that strip we could have had another comic doctor regeneration but uh, it was not to be probably for the best Probably. I think we both agreed it's a banger, not a clanger. It's absolutely a banger, yeah. Great. So that kind of wraps things up here. Do you want to tell the people listening where they can find you on the internet if there's any chance they don't listen to On The Time Lash already? <laughs> uh, either find us on the, your usual places for podcasts or we're also at onthetimelash.wordpress.com and also, as a little side uh, hustle, side project, I'm also working on uh with our good friend richie morgan on a documentary about doctor who in this exact period that uh dylan and i have been talking about in the the sort of 90s um so if you have any recollections doctorwhofandoc.com visit us there leave us a little message and we'll um yeah we'll we'll come and speak to you not directly to you (laughs) but we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear from you exciting stuff i can't wait to see uh, how that documentary turns out because you'll be in it you'll be in uh, the, it you'll be... the 90s were a wild time they certainly were they certainly were so until next time where I will be rejoined by Jack who's been lost in a dark dimension for a couple of episodes <laughs> this has been Doctor Who Too Hot for TV and we'll be back next month It's, it's just I mean I hope that's true imagine I hope that's true imagine getting a it's like a really niche myth makers where you go and have a sports massage and uh, he tells you about the making of Dragonfire oh. <laughs> I'm sold I need to just have a um, that's so funny that I need to just have a little senior moment I'll be back <laughs> no, no worries <laughs> Sorry about that. That just reminds me of the time I went to see Barry Letts in Edinburgh <laughs> and midway through a panel discussion he went, I'm so sorry. I just have to have a senior moment and then just walk <laughs> out of the panel to go for a piss. It's perfectly fine. Nobody on the podcast will ever know.